0: Listening to Dissent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored Episode 208. This week, immigrant and excluded workers in New York marched for justice under the banner Still Essential, marking six months since the first federal relief went out to workers in the early days of the COVID 19 pandemic. Six months later, too many people are still locked out of the first rounds of relief, and no more seems to be forthcoming. We talk about this and more today. First up, the news. Last week was a national week of mourning for the over 210,000 Americans who have died in the COVID-19 pandemic, and for working people who have put their health at risk to take care of the rest of us. This was especially poignant. In Minnesota, frontline workers gathered for a frontline workers' day of mourning and action from industries including healthcare, janitorial, construction, transportation, manufacturing, and childcare. A range of labor organizations, from the Awood Center to the Minnesota Nurses Association to SEIU Healthcare Minnesota to CITUL, came together and the workers spoke about their experiences and made demands for increased safety and economic protections. Here's a clip from that event featuring some of those frontline workers.
1: I have stood for the last eight months in front of the media with tears, begging, and pleading for more PPE or personal protective equipment for all the frontline healthcare workers, not just the nurses. But today, I have no tears. What I have is anger. I have anger that I could go to a strike line at Abbott on Monday and at St. Francis on Tuesday where those healthcare workers were having to go on strike because their employer would not pay for any COVID tests. Is regenerate. There are some buses that we have don't even have windows.
2: So we're dealing
1: with recirculated air. We're dealing with people not wearing masks. So we're sitting in this air hour after hour, and it's just been a nightmare. We're dealing with a contract issue right now, trying to get transit to give us the hazard pay we deserve. We're dealing with our cleaners who are contracting the virus. We've had 89 ATU members across the country that have died. We've got 88 confirmed cases in Minnesota alone with transit, bus drivers, cleaners, mechanics. This needs to change. We need the help and we want our government to stand up. Childcare has been asked by Governor Walls and by our state government to stay open to provide care for essential workers and for parents who cannot afford to quit their jobs. Childcare workers have done this because they are educators, they are carers for our youngest Minnesotans,
3: but they have done so without any kind of hazard pay, without any kind of protection to make sure that they are safe, without any extra PPP given to them. And that is just not okay. Our early childhood educators deserve hazard pay. They deserve the kind of equipment that will keep them and their babies safe. They deserve to go home to their families and not have to worry about bringing any kind of illness
1: or sickness into their own homes. They deserve to work for more than minimum wage right now, and they deserve all of this with the support of our state and federal government. Remember, I will only perish if you lose your your commitment, because those who who have died, this is a struggle life of everybody, and every, every brother and sister, and for those who have died, no one, no one needed of silence. We must always carry on the struggle and
0: fight. That was a segment from the Workers' Morning event held in the Twin Cities last week. As always, we want to hear from you. How have you and your co-workers been grappling with the pandemic? Tweet at us at hashtag belabored or write to us at belabored at descentmagazine.org.
3: There is one federal agency tasked with keeping workers safe, and in the midst of a global pandemic, its failure to do so could not be more abject. But given that the president has turned his own workplace, the White House, into the world's most famous hotspot for COVID-19 transmission, the disintegration of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration may come as no surprise. However, the agency does have significant power, in theory, to enforce Occupational Safety and Health Regulations. But after years of inadequate funding and a shrinking field staff, the agency is now basically standing on the sidelines instead of proactively setting safety standards, conducting investigations, and holding employers accountable for putting their workers at risk of a deadly virus. A new report by the Century Foundation argues that, quote, OSHA should be making a substantial contribution to this effort nationally, but it has chosen to play a minor advisory role, providing safety tips and soft recommendations, but rarely requiring employers to provide adequate protection for their employees, unquote. This kind of willful neglect and reliance on voluntary compliance by businesses is fueling the outbreaks that have been erupting at workplaces across the country. And those outbreaks will continue to proliferate in workplaces like meatpacking plants, as the Trump administration and state officials continue to cheerlead the so-called reopening of the economy in the coming months, while cutting big business a blank check to put workers in harm's way in the name of profit. I spoke with Dr. David Michaels, co-author of the report and former head of OSHA under Obama, about the decline of the agency and what he recommends as proactive steps that the agency could take to protect workers from the pandemic, as well as other workplace hazards that it hasn't been addressing over the past four years.
2: Workplace exposures to COVID 19 are really one of the drivers of this pandemic in the United States. From the very beginning, we saw how uh, workers, first in nursing homes and other healthcare institutions, were getting sick and also transmitting the illness to patients, to their families, to communities, then meatpacking plants and farm workers and others. And as we have industries, jobs where people are exposed to other workers or to the public we have people getting sick and at this point while it hasn't really been tracked by the administration in any reasonable way we know that hundreds of thousands of workers have been infected at work and hundreds and probably thousands have died if we're going to stop this epidemic which we really need to do we're going to have to stop workplace transmission and the federal government not just osha but the entire federal government has no plan. They've got no idea of how they're going to do this. And that's really the point of the report, to look at both OSHA and other agencies and the White House and say, what have they done so far, which is pitifully little, and what can they do to put a stop to this really terrible crisis?
3: You had noted that um, because OSHA has done so little, um, there's really nothing no comprehensive effort to control workplace transmission. And yet, um, you know, you see President Trump every day going out and kind of encouraging everyone to go back to work and, you know, life, you know, quote, unquote, normal life to uh, resume. Um, So uh, I I imagine that uh, whatever findings um, surfaced in in your report, um, you know, over the past few months, um, they're likely to get worse in the coming months as reopening continues.
2: That's certainly a concern. Uh, When I look at the data and I look at the uh, current increases in, you know, two thirds of the states, knowing how growth, if it's not controlled, is exponential, we certainly can expect more cases, more hospitalizations, and unfortunately more deaths uh, over the next few months. Especially also with people moving indoors much more. Uh, It's not inevitable, and certainly we're doing a little bit better in terms of treatment. So we'll have fewer deaths than we might have had six months ago. But we have these obvious events that are going on, the White House being a, a great example of of a workplace where people weren't being protected and they're exposed to one or more uh, active people with active infections, and many people get sick, and then their their partners get sick and their children get sick and other people in their community will get sick. Uh, it's remarkable to me that we could see this going on over and over again in different workplaces in different industries without any sort of national approach saying we have to address this problem. Some states are now doing it, and you know the state of Virginia, for example, issued an emergency temporary standard which will require employers to provide adequate distance and and proper protective equipment um, but most states rely on the federal government for this and uh, not just OSHA, but all these agencies really are doing very little and they're just watching this develop. They're saying things will get better when we have a vaccine and uh, you know things will get a little better when we have a vaccine, but it's not going to stop this transmission.
3: In the past few months, you've seen um, meatpacking plants become sort of a hotspot for transmission. Can you talk about what types of workforces are most vulnerable and what is OSHA's record in terms of monitoring um, or investigating those workplaces?
2: Well, first, the workers who are at risk are any group of workers who are exposed to other workers or the public without proper protection. And so certainly warehouses are an issue. As schools reopen, we know that teachers are being exposed and they're getting sick, and that, that's not surprising. You know, It's not difficult to find these outbreaks, and more importantly, there are many instances where no one identifies the source of the case, but a worker is exposed at work, they expose other workers, they can bring the the disease home. So the way to address that is to have a national requirement, a series of national requirements, but what OSHA could do is issue an emergency temporary standard. Something very straightforward, the OSHA law says that when you have a very serious hazard that's novel, that OSHA doesn't have a standard for it, To this point, OSHA can quickly issue essentially emergency requirements that would say that, for example, every employer must provide workers with adequate PPE and adequate distance to limit exposure. And if an employer doesn't do that, they have to show very clearly why they can't and what alternative steps they're taking to protect those workers. Now, OSHA, under the Trump administration and under the... uh, direction of Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia has refused to do that. They've simply said, we have we have all the tools we need. We're not going to issue a standard, which of course is total nonsense. Uh, every safety health professional I know looks at this situation and laughs when Secretary Scalia says they have all the tools they need because they're leaving the, the most important tool they have, which is an emergency temporary standard, you know, in the top drawer. Uh, it's telling OSHA, you've got to go out. And if you are going to do inspections, you don't have a standard to inspect for. So beyond not have and a standard's effective because a standard tells every employer in the country, this is what you must do to follow the law. And many employers, of course, want to be law abiding and they'll do that. The other thing OSHA should be doing is more powerful inspections. Even though they don't have a standard to enforce, there are other things they could do in an inspection. But OSHA is not doing that. First, they decide they said we wouldn't do any inspections, and then they said they would do only healthcare uh, facilities, and now they're doing more widely. But when they're doing inspections, they issue very very small fines, and most notably, fines against two of the largest. Meat packing companies in the world, uh, JBS, which is a huge Brazilian owned corporation, and, and Smithfield Foods, which is a, a Chinese corporation, a, but both these global corporations were each fined for really terrible exposures where many workers were uh, infected and workers were killed at each of these facilities. They fined them each $15,000. So that That's a really important point to make because OSHA inspections and OSHA citations send a message not simply to the employer who gets the citation, but to every other employer. It's a reminder to every employer in the industry that OSHA could inspect and could find hazards and issue fines. So a fine to a $50 billion corporation, uh, a fine that's $15,000 essentially says, hey, don't worry about it. You can do whatever you want. The OSHA inspection is not going to change anything about your workplace?
3: Recently, there have been changes uh, with the way OSHA reports data on injuries. Um, has Is that a factor in um, its sort of lackluster performance in response to COVID-19?
2: Well, the most concerning part of OSHA's changing uh, requirements around reporting injuries, now, OSHA requires Employers to keep track of injuries and illnesses, that, that we call that recording them out on their OSHA log. But uh, I issued a regulation that required OSHA, uh, required employers to report to OSHA, to notify OSHA when a worker is hospitalized. It was powerful. There were a number of different new requirements, but the hospitalization required, uh, the hospitalization regulation required employers to call OSHA within 24 hours of a worker being hospitalized for a injury or illness. Just recently, in the last couple of weeks, the uh, Scalia uh, administration at the Labor Department changed the interpretation of the rule and said that the 24 hours is triggered not by the hospitalization, but by the exposure. And anybody who knows anything about COVID-19 knows that someone who's exposed will never be hospitalized within 24 hours of exposure. It takes several days for the symptoms to come on. And then when they get worse, you can be hospitalized. So they've essentially set up a system where they guarantee they will not be notified by employers when workers are hospitalized. And OSHA seems to want less information because then they can't be accused of doing so little. If they're not notified, then they have an excuse for not actually going and contacting that employer and saying, why don't you protect your workers?
3: You manage what you measure, I guess. And when you're not measuring anything, right. yeah, you don't do anything.
2: Exactly. You know, OSHA is 50 years old. It's it's a weak agency, but there is much it could do in the face of this terrible crisis. And it is, it's disheartening and shameful that the Trump administration has decided to just um, – turn OSHA into a advice agency rather than an agency that sets requirements on employers to make sure every worker is safe, that every worker can leave work just as healthy as they, they were when they got to work that morning.
3: That was Dr. David Michaels, former head of OSHA and now a professor in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at George Washington University.
0: Last week, workers at eight campuses of the Alameda Health System, AHS, in California's East Bay, went on strike across multiple unions and segments of the hospital system. In addition to 3,200 members of SEIU Local 1021 across three bargaining units, nurses, advanced practitioners, and staffers like housekeepers, technicians, social workers, and food service workers, there were also 300 RNs in the California Nurses Association and a small group of radiology techs who were members of ILWU who called a sympathy strike. For healthcare workers to strike during a pandemic is really not an easy decision. But one of those respiratory therapists told Labor Notes' Bianca Cunningham that the crisis had made their fight even more necessary. When we have to fight the administration, it's impossible for us to give 100% of our care and attention to the patients who desperately need us, they said. Hospital management had asked for 100 pages worth of givebacks in this bargaining the first bargaining session, according to Labor Notes. Bianca wrote, Quote, these included a wage freeze, the reduction or outright elimination of shift differentials, deleting contract language that gives job security to full and part time as well as contract workers. Instead, allowing management to cancel shifts on the spot an end to guaranteed hours, removing legally mandated Title 22 nurse to patient ratios and staffing matrices from the contract, eliminating the employer paid education fund for free college or vocational training and shortening the discipline process. But that wasn't all. As usual, management proved the best organizer by coming after members' healthcare plan. Currently, workers enjoy a no-premium healthcare option, one of many. Management announced that starting in January, workers on that plan will have to pay 10% of the premium, a heavy lift for low-paid workers with dependents. End quote. It's always funny to me that healthcare companies are the first ones to try to destroy their workers' healthcare benefits, although I suppose that's pretty universal these days. Anyway, the Alameda health system, Bianca explained, quote, was run by the county until late 1990s and funded through public money. Then legislation made AHS its own public sector entity, no longer funded by or under the jurisdiction of the county. Instead, the county loans the health system money and forces AHS to pay the debt. And the only way the AHS board sees to pay the debt is through budget cuts, end quote. So two days into the strike, the workers won a huge victory. Keith Brower-Brown, also at Labor Notes, wrote, quote, After years of stalling, the elected board of supervisors of Alameda County suddenly announced they would disband the unelected board of trustees that has long mismanaged this public safety net healthcare system, end quote. Shalika Carter, a community health outreach worker and AHS chapter secretary in SEIU 1021, told Labor Notes, quote, the privatization is stopped. It brings the system to a place where the, now the community has a say in how they get care and how the system is run. Employees have a voice about the changes that need to be made. End quote. The fight continues as the workers are still in pursuit of a fair contract and the management of the system has yet to be worked out. But in the upcoming battles over healthcare in the US, because are we ever going to be done with those? In the ongoing fight to have a public healthcare system, you know that one these workers' victory is more than just symbolic. It is a reminder of where and how workers can exercise power against those who would run healthcare for a profit. And this was a rank and file led and run strike. Because of the pandemic, union staff weren't even allowed into the hospitals. That should be a lesson for everyone. The New School
3: for Social Research has historically been a bastion of progressive and radical academia, but the pandemic has driven the storied New York institution to initiate severe austerity measures. Earlier this month, the administration announced it would lay off 122 workers, or about one eighth of the administrative staff. The administration claims that the cuts were necessary to deal with the school's financial hardships. But the New School Labor Coalition has demanded that those jobs be spared and that the college instead look to cut the salaries of its top administrators. Currently, the Labor Coalition, which includes unions associated with United Auto Workers and the Teamsters, as well as faculty associated with the American Association of University Professors, is mobilizing against the layoffs and seeking to negotiate directly with New School President Dwight McBride. Though the New School has a distinct history of labor clashes and disputes over what many see as the corporatization of the institution, this latest spate of layoffs is part of a larger crisis across higher education, as the pandemic has thrown campuses into turmoil and destabilized the budgets of many colleges and universities. I spoke to Henry Robbins, an organizer with the New School Labor Coalition, about what the layoffs mean for the staff and for the wider campus community.
4: On September 22nd, uh, the university announced that on Friday, October 2nd, they were going to lay off 122 uh, staff members at the university. Um, And after a week of um, stress and anxiety, um, 122 people were Uh, let go. And uh, in my union, uh, 44 of of our union members, brothers and sisters and colleagues uh, lost their positions. Um, And uh, what's frustrating uh, about the entire process is, you know, the university um, did not uh, work with the union, discuss um, these layoffs uh, beforehand. um, And in addition to laying off 122 people, the university is not rehiring 80 positions that were vacant due to attrition. Um, so it's uh, so for those who remain at the university, they are overworked, uh, stressed about lo- losing their job, trying to overcome working from home. Uh, many of those staff members were furloughed for uh, a period of time between um, March and uh, August of this year. Um, and. You know the, you know everyone is um, is quite frustrated because you know there's sort of a social contract uh, when you work in education, which is these are traditionally lower-paid jobs, um, but there should be a monicum of job security, and uh, the new school is kind of thrown that social contract out the window, um, which was a big part of its mission. Um, So you know people are upset. So, what types of workers are um, being
3: laid off at this point? Is it uh, mainly uh, staff, uh, faculty?
4: So right now it's um, the administrative uh, staff. So, um, you know, workers who work in various administrative departments at the university, from the library to um, secretaries for departments um, that kind of are often the um, heart and soul of those departments. Um, The person that uh, a student can see every day and you know have a connection with uh are the ones losing their jobs. Um you know what we're seeing I think overall is a lot of these um a lot of the cuts, um they they're you know they're being made to save um you know the jobs of white male administrators
3: um and uh what is uh I mean it seems like there's a campaign underway to try to oppose these layoffs. Um what are what are the, I mean, what leverage do, uh, does the union have at this point, and are there any types of interventions that might help, or are you just sort of kind of voicing, voicing opposition generally?
4: You know, following some of the examples sent by, um, by Rutgers, AAUP, um, and their um, coalition building, uh, we try to use that as a model, and uh, when the furloughs started happening, I think safety measures were a big concern regarding COVID, which still remain uh, a concern, um, and the lack of bringing the unions to the table. Um, the various collective bargaining units at the university started working together and formed a coalition called the New School Labor Coalition to build awareness, uh, share resources and information in order to further uh, push back against these austerity measures that ultimately hurt the programs uh, and the students um, you know, by hurting its workers. Um, there
3: have been a number of... Uh... Labor-related disputes at the new school, I think, in recent years, right, um, and uh, and just general uh, conflicts between students and faculty and the administration. Um, does this kind of fit into that pattern?
4: Uh, yeah, the university has a been, has a pattern of union busting um, for for many years. Um, they have tried to chisel away at the bargaining units um, and m- classify. Uh, workers outside of the bargain unit to circumvent union contracts. Um, they opposed the student um, unionizing efforts. Uh, before that, they opposed the uh, part-time faculty unionizing efforts. Um, and they also took and dra- dragged their feet when the student health employees' workers were unionizing um, and trying to uh, fight for a contract. So, um, you know, the university is constantly taking the position that they're on the wrong side of, that is on the wrong side of history um, and goes against the, uh, their you know, the goals that they preach that are social justice and inclusion. Um, but when it comes to practicing what they preach, they are, um, they're not following through. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um... It seems like higher education is facing a bit of a crisis amid this pandemic. Um, a lot of, particularly um, private liberal arts colleges, um, many of them, you know, smaller ones with smaller endowments, um, seems like they're facing some dire financial straits. Um, I, I presume that there are going to be a lot more layoffs in the months to come. Um, do you have a message for uh, for faculty and staff at other campuses and And I guess, what do you say uh, when the administration says, you know, we're in dire financial straits and
4: uh, we have to make, you know, quote unquote, tough choices? What do you say to that? Uh, Well, I say from the top, you know, most uh, what we see in, I think, a lot of America right now is bloated administration um, where uh, that brings in, you know, uh, people outside the market rate and you have a lot of consultants being brought in to advise boards of directors to, you know, pay a certain salary for a president that's upwards of half a million dollars. And, um, you know, that is not the direction that a university should go. And I think that, um, you know, if I was going to say something to all workers, it would be, um, you know, work to make sure that you're on that board of directors um, at your institution and board of governors, um, that you have a seat at the table. Um, because if you're not at the table, you're what's for dinner.
3: That was Henry Robbins of the New School Labor Coalition. Earlier this year, Congress passed an unprecedented relief package for workers, including expanded unemployment assistance and one time stimulus checks. Yet, while the aid package was pretty big compared to what had come before, it still left out millions of workers, including many undocumented immigrants, as well as other types of workers who do not qualify under the stringent criteria and requirements for proof of formal employment. Many immigrants' rights groups have been campaigning for equal benefits for these excluded workers so that they are not left further behind as the economy limps towards recovery and many low-wage workers remain at risk of infection or job loss. California has managed to provide some relief on the state level for its undocumented workers. New York, by contrast, has so far failed to pass a similar measure, and Governor Andrew Cuomo has rejected the idea. The National Day Labor Organizing Network, or ENDELON, held a rally in New York on Monday, Indigenous People's Day, with community and labor groups to pressure Governor Cuomo to provide relief to all excluded workers, namely by supporting legislation that's already been proposed in the state legislature, which would provide undocumented workers and other excluded workers with payments that are roughly the equivalent of pandemic unemployment assistance for a typical low-wage worker. I spoke with Nadia Marine Molina, co-executive director of Endelon, about the grassroots push to include the excluded not just for pandemic relief, but across the economy.
5: So on on Monday, um, we had an action which was which was it turned out to be um, beautiful. It was um, more than a hundred workers um, from Endelon member day labor organizations in New York, um, New York City, Long Island, Westchester, um, and and allied organizations as well, and just community members, um, and marched across the Mario Cuomo Bridge, um, which is the bridge that used to be the Tappan Zee Bridge, but the current governor, Governor Andrew Cuomo, um, had the bridge named after his father, the former governor of New York State, Mario Cuomo. So um, our members felt, as as we were all organizing the action, they felt that it was important to, to do this, to send a direct message to Governor Cuomo um, that it has been, you know, six months a, uh, after the beginning of the pandemic, and now an, an exact six months on that day, that um, undocumented workers in particular were left out, um, excluded from the federal stimulus from being able to receive funds, and that New York has done nothing, has not provided a penny to support, um, undocumented, uh, undocumented workers. And the governor really has said nothing and has been against the different proposals that there have been. Um, so the, the march on, on Monday was, um, despite the rain and a, a, a long bridge, um, was, was very energetic. Um, and we felt really sent a strong message.
3: So I, I understand that, uh, there, there's a, proposal on the table to provide um, basically unemployment relief and stimulus sort of funding for excluded workers, um, kind of, you know, in a a scheme that would be sort of parallel to what um, other workers have been getting um, across the country. Is that right? Yes.
5: Um, So in New York state, there, there has been legislation legislation that's been proposed um, by Senator Jessica Ramos Um, it's S8277, the number of the legislation and, and in the assembly. Um, and the idea of the legislation is to create a fund, um, specifically for excluded workers and that the fund would be, um, available to workers who were affected, who lost their jobs, who lost their source of income, um, because of the pandemic and, um, 're not able to access federal stimulus funding um, or state unemployment insurance I think one of the important things is that in the United States when there is an economic um, recession one of the most important things that the that the federal government can do is actually the state un, through the state unemployment insurance it's it's one of the ways that um, government responds to um to crisis, right? To economic crisis, and so when there's a when there's a recession, as in as in this case, sometimes they give um, additional amounts to workers who've lost their jobs, or they extend the length um, for which workers are able to receive unemployment. And so for undocumented workers, there is a double exclusion, right? One which is a specific exclusion from the twelve hundred dollar coronavirus response. Uh, which is called the Cares Act, and the ongoing exclusion from unemployment insurance, um, and day laborers, um, and many other workers who work um, and contribute um, to state taxes, to county taxes, to local taxes for years. You know, many have worked for years and years in the in in the country. Um, either they're contributing and their employers are sometimes contributing to unemployment insurance as well. And yet, now that there's this urgent need and this crisis, they're now not able to access a single penny. Um, and so the legislation was created to create an alternative fund, basically to um, to allow workers who were excluded, mostly undocumented workers, but also, for example, uh, formerly incarcerated workers who were recently released and might not have accumulated enough time um, of work to be able to qualify for unemployment insurance could also um, access it. And other people, for example, somebody who uh, works in a small business but doesn't have the documentation to be able to show that they have lost their income um, could, those are the, the kinds of uh, workers who would be eligible for this kind of fund.
3: Can you just uh, talk a little bit about, um, just give sort of a definition of, um, of excluded workers um, as it relates to like this legislation and um, what other proposals are, are uh, demanding. Yes. It, it, you know, many people might think of undocumented immigrant workers, but um, as you said, you know, formerly incarcerated people are also part of that. So what is the sort of the universe of, excluded workers because um, very many people cannot qualify for standard unemployment benefits.
5: Right. Um, I think that that's the the fund. The idea of the fund originally came from the issue of people who are undocumented, right. And were clearly um, excluded from the, um, from the federal stimulus. So when that was passed, there was this, you know, specific exclusion where even people who had paid through an individual taxpayer number, if they they had paid federal taxes, um, had filed taxes, um, even those workers are excluded from receiving the federal stimulus, and even their U.S. citizen family members, because they're part of a family that has an undocumented worker, were also excluded from receiving the federal stimulus funding. So that's kind of where the original... Issue, right, where the original idea came for to create alternative sources of funding to, to provide a different source for, for the stimulus. And so, in some states, like in California, they created um, the state along with um, private funders, created a fund that, that workers could access. This legislation goes further because it does create a fund for um, undocumented workers. But it's also, um, as I mentioned, for other workers who for other reasons wouldn't qualify, right? So um, unemployment insurance, yes, you have to you have to be documented to be able to access it. Um, but you also have to have worked a certain number of weeks, right? Um, it can be with different employers, but you do have to show that you have worked a certain number of, of weeks. And so sometimes, even if you're documented, but you don't have the proof right to be able to show that you had that income Um, you then you lose your job you might not be able to qualify for unemployment insurance unfortunately because it's built on that right so if you're working off the books um, even if you're documented you might have a right to and many times workers do have a right to but the problem is that it's not every worker has an attorney who's going to you know um, fight for them, you know, for their, their, to get through that process. And so it's a really difficult process more so now, um, during the pandemic. And so, um, so I think, you know, workers who are not able to qualify for, for many different reasons would be able to qualify through this, um, through this fund for, for excluded workers.
3: Um there were some expansions to uh the unemployment system under the um pandemic unemployment assistance scheme um that Congress put out, like for instance, people who were gig economy workers were able to qualify for benefits for the first time would would this proposal have parallel uh benefits for people who may be perhaps not uh not classified as you know official uh, employees
5: if if the workers were able, let's say that they um, that they are gig economy workers, but they're not they don't have enough proof to be able to show um, if they have uh, if they don't have enough proof to be able to show that to uh, unemployment, then they would be able to qualify for this. So if they're able, the idea is that it that that they wouldn't be able to. If they were all, if they were able to access unemployment insurance, right? So it, the idea is that it provides an alternative. Um, I mean, right now, um, as you know, the, the pandemic unemployment, uh, expansion, right, is, is, has, has ended, right? The extra $600. Um, and so, the you know that there's a question of, for example, if um, if there are workers who possibly could qualify under both, would it include them? I don't know. Um, those are some of the sort of more difficult questions in the legislation. Um, but I think that the idea of the legislation is to cover workers who either are not, you know, have not been able to qualify for an employment insurance in one way or another, or would not be able to when the legislation is passed, right? Um, Which we don't know when that will be.
3: I mean, it it seems like as this pandemic drags on, it seems like, uh, I don't know, the the entire unemployment system just seems wholly inadequate to to really um, support workers um, through this kind of ordeal. Um, And this is, of course, not helped by the fact that Congress can't seem to pass Another stimulus package, so um I mean in the long term like what would um you know it seems like the excluded workers fund is sort of like a placeholder in uh a broader campaign to kind of include excluded workers right so yeah. ultimately what what is uh what is the sort of um the vision of this campaign uh you know how do we make ex- excluded workers included yes, um I
5: mean. The, yeah, this is, this particular uh, campaign is for this particular legislation, right? But the issue of exclusion of workers is, is bigger than that, right? So, um, for example, for undocumented workers, um, and day laborers, right? Um, exclusion from being able to access health services, right? Health insurance. Um, I mean, the, the entire, health system is is terrible for everybody right but there are specific exclusions right which make it more difficult for people who are undocumented um to be able to access the poor systems that exist right and so um you know our our at least from Endilan's um point of view from the beginning of the the pandemic um it, 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 it is important to see that um, health issues affect everybody right and when you're when you're um, faced with a crisis like uh, you know like a, a pandemic like this it's important to take everybody into account because the more that our society excludes different people for whatever reasons um, or doesn't take them into account and doesn't um, figure out what are the ways that, their needs, whether it's for income or uh, insurance or for housing um, or how those are addressed, then that's where it's going to fall apart. Right. Like that's exactly where the crisis is going to be. And you can see that from the, you know, the the COVID infections spreading in prisons, right. In detention centers, like in the places where people are thrown in there. In a system where the 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 people who are in charge of it don't care about the the workers or the family members or whoever is being detained, then that's the area right where coronavirus spreads because that that that's the weak the weak point right. Um, And so where you know if if New York State is going to be different um, and is going to say that. You know we're an immigrant-friendly um, place. Then we have to show that, and show that that you know the exclusion of workers, whether it's from unemployment insurance or from um, from health services or uh, whatever it is, that that exclusion is something that hurts everybody.
3: Even people who did qualify for unemployment assistance and the stimulus package. Um, they they are still struggling. Can you talk about how workers have been faring if they aren't excluded um, over the past six months? I mean, what have they been doing to scrape by? Are many of them, you know, trying to find work where they can get it? Um, are they sort of uh, living on, what, savings? Like, how are they scraping by?
5: I mean, yeah, I think everybody's doing what they can. Um, and And I think you know, in situations, for example, um, day laborers and the day labor organizations that we work with, people, you know, try to accumulate savings in the spring and summer before the winter comes because that's the bad time for work, right? And so the pandemic came in March and grew over the summer and the the ability of workers to be able to save money for the winter, which is you know usually what um, day laborers are doing, you know it, it it destroyed that their ability to do that, um, and so workers have been obviously you know um, finding support in whatever way they can, right? So food um, distribution, a lot of the centers are doing, uh, day labor centers are doing food distribution, um, and day laborers are are also you know, supporting each other, right, and and volunteering and, and doing that sort of community um, support. But um, but you know, with without external support, right, or without support from the government, it's not it's not enough. You know, like Endelon, we created um, um our members created an immigrant worker safety net fund, so we fundraised, you know, from foundations to be able to give people some cash. But whatever amount we do, you know, from donations, et cetera, it's not enough. Right. And so, um, you know, worker, there are more workers who are homeless. Right. Who have been despite all the, you know, eviction um, uh, prevention, uh, people still get evicted and uh, work more workers who are homeless um and workers who yeah who who don't have enough access to food um have not been able to find new jobs and and i think the other thing is the 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 it, what it it forces people to take jobs that they might not have 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 done otherwise um because people are you know more desperate to take whatever they can find in this moment and so um so that means that they have less you know leverage to protect their wages and to protect their uh their safety on the job and in terms of working conditions and so this this crisis is is it yes it's about people losing their jobs but it's about more than that in terms of the income of the jobs that people that people have been able to find
3: yeah and I was just thinking that, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, if you're having to really scrape the bottom of the barrel in terms of finding whatever work you can get, um, you're probably going to be putting yourself at risk of getting infected. And um, and that will turn into a whole other spiral, perhaps, of, uh, of crises. Yes,
5: yes. And um, I mean, you know, within within the the day labor community there have been in and in the organizations there have been um uh, organizers um staff people from the different centers who've gotten sick um from coronavirus <clears throat> members day laborers who've died um ac- you know ac- across the country and um and as you said are, are exposing themselves um every day and their families um every day and and even, you know, in addition to that, the the question of access to health is something that is is so important, right? Like workers generally have not had health insurance, right? That's a, that's a luxury that that in, in general has not been accessible to um, to day laborers, right? But in a, in a case like now, you know, uh, whether workers have access to testing. Whether they'll have access to um, to a vaccine if it comes out, like the issue the issue of access to health is critical, Um, and I feel like right now because we are in the situation where at least in New York, you know the 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 infection levels have have lower are lower than they were obviously at the at the the peak of the, the crisis then. You know, people have relaxed to some degree, but as soon as the numbers start to go up, the issue of lack of access to to health is is going to you know to bite us all again because the structures are not are not there. You know, um, no matter no matter what what we hear, um, it's just not true, right? That people have equal access to um, to health uh, supports to testing or to, or to anything else.
3: Yeah. And of course, um, you know, we in New York, um, have a democratic administration, um, and, uh, and, you know, certainly the continual exclusion of undocumented workers and many others, um, um, has been sort of a bipartisan consensus in Washington. Um, you know, we're all sort of obsessed with what's going to happen in November with the election. But um, in terms of groups like yours and you know, your broader movement, I mean, how how do you reflect on kind of this political moment we're in?
5: I mean, we we have to, um, and our, our you know in our discussions with our member organizations, what what they have said to us as well is we have to prepare for both. Um, we have to prepare for you know another Trump administration, which is obviously horrible thought, um, because it will bring additional um, you know suffering. Um, we we can see that that what what that the administration has done has been you know devastating already um, in terms of you know destroying. Um, the different parts of, of the immigration system. I'll mention just one, which is the TPS. Um, the the um, taking away the TPS protection for TPS holders. Um, so it's taking away documentation from from people from workers who have it, um, as well as all the other you know things that 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 they do in terms of additional de- detention and deportation. Um, but we also have to plan in case there is a Biden administration, right? How do we hold that administration accountable to what they need to do to really uh, change the situation for uh, the immigrant community? Um, and so we have to sort of stand ready on on both ends. I think um, under under the the possibility of a of a Biden administration, like the questions are, you know, how quickly. Can they take action um, on the things that that need to be done in terms of executive action um, and how much executive action they can take? I think that that's one thing that we'll be looking at um, and, and we'll be pressuring around. Um, and I think the the other thing around around the Biden administration is. That at least this is sort of what we're hearing, you know. In in general is and and there was a New York Times editorial that said this, like, well, he's not going to be able to undo what Trump has done in four years, and it sounds kind of like they're they're trying to already say like, don't ask for too much, right? <laughs> and that is worrisome because under a Biden administration, it's it, it's actually not enough to undo what Trump has done in four years and just kind of go back to Obama. Um, That's what put us in the situation where we are now. And some of the mechanisms that Obama was using are mechanisms that Trump is just taking advantage of. Right. And so we need to to do better. We need to do more than that. Um, And if Democrats are in power, then we feel that we have to hold them accountable to to do better than than than. Than that right, better than the bare minimum, um, certainly, and to have a new you know vision for worker justice migrant justice and, and and all of those things together
3: yeah, certainly and um, I mean is there, um, is there anything else you want to i guess I, I should ask you I mean what do you think the prospects are for the legislation um, to realistically, given that uh, Cuomo has continually kind of rebuffed? This um, then again, it did happen in California, or something like it, so um, so what are you are you optimistic about this measure and and I guess um, what's you know do you have upcoming um, steps in your campaign or escalation uh, that you're planning on?
5: Yeah, one thing that i would that I would add is that um, one of the the important parts of the of the legislation is that the way that it creates a fu- the fund is by placing a tax on billionaires and on billionaires' wealth, um, and so in in New York right now there are a few different measures like this that uh, that that pre, that place a tax on different kinds of wealth that mili- you know ultra millionaires and billionaires have, um, and so this one uh, creates this tax and then would create the fund out of that tax, and so it's actually um, something which. In the beginning, uh, Cuomo was saying that well, we're in financial crisis. We're certainly not going to you know talk about you know, a fund for a undocumented workers yet. Um, and they've been waiting to see what the federal government does. Um, but since the federal government has clearly done nothing, um, and there is no indication that they are going to you know uh, create any funds, then they have to look back. Now New York State has to look more closely. Even though they haven't wanted to, they have to look at creating revenue here in New York State. And so then that's the question of how they're going to tax million, you know, ultra millionaires and billionaires. Um, and I, I I, do think that actually we have advanced a lot on that discussion, um, where originally it was like 100 percent no. Now, you know, even Even Cuomo and some of the legislative um, leaders are saying it's something that they will consider or support. Um, And so then now the question is just to make sure that if they're going to pass some kind of of additional taxes and they're going to generate revenues, that they don't go through all that and then exclude the same workers who've been excluded, right? (laughs) So in some ways they're going to, you know, let's say pass a tax to support education, which needs, you know, funds, certainly the education system or the healthcare system or, or whatever. Um, but we, we want to make sure is that whatever funds are raised, that there is consideration um, and that they are making sure to include undocumented workers and all the other excluded workers within that discussion. So it's not acceptable to just kind of, you know, create the additional revenue and then do the same thing, right? In terms of excluding workers. So I I, I do think we've made progress on that, on that end. And we just have to, you know, continue to, to push. If New York state doesn't create additional sources of revenue by taxing the wealthy, then, you know, then it's easy for them to say that there's no money because they're cutting in all the other, in, in all the other areas and then they're, they're certainly not going to, to fund workers. But if they raise revenue in order to support the state in all the areas that it needs, then, then uh, excluded workers have to be a part of that.
0: You're listening to Belaboured, a Dissent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Nadia Marin Molina, co-executive director of the National Day Labor Organizing Network. You can find links and more information about all of this at the Dissent website, dissentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everyone's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. So this week, I am talking to you about an issue you have heard me harp on about before. The plant closures in the Midwest, which despite Trump and Pence's promises, have continued under this administration. Daniel Morans at the HuffPost has a piece out this week titled, Trump promised a break with GOP trickle-down economics. He delivered more of the same. I'm focusing on this piece because I think it's a really important and somewhat undercovered story of the Trump years. Trump was able to win in swaths of the Midwest that had voted for Obama twice because he promised to do something about the unending job loss and the decline of a way of life. And because the name Clinton means NAFTA in a lot of places in America, he promised to bring jobs back, to stand to the losses, to pay attention to working people, white working people anyway. As Moran writes, quote, Trump built his presidential run first and foremost on anti-immigrant demagoguery of the kind eschewed by his party's Chamber of Commerce wing. But he also flouted long-standing conservative economic orthodoxies in ways that angered conservatives and inspired a mixture of ideological intrigue and political fear in some liberals. He trashed free trade agreements that have been the bane of the organized labor movement since the early 1990s, promising to shelve an existing accord and renegotiate others in an effort to revive domestic manufacturing. He vowed to defend Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid from any cuts, empower Medicare to negotiate bulk rates on prescription drugs, repeal the Affordable Care Act while providing universal coverage through other means, and pass an infrastructure bill twice the size of what his then-Democratic rival Hillary Clinton was proposing. He mocked the country's pay-to-play campaign finance system and the low tax rate paid by the paper pushers who run hedge funds, end quote. Unfortunately for some of the workers who believed some of those promises, Moran's notes, quote, As it turned out, the elements of Trump's candidacy with the narrowest public appeal, racism, mismanagement, vanity, and inattention to policy detail came to fruition, while the heterodox policy stances and rhetoric that gave some on the populist left and right the faintest whiff of optimism fell by the wayside, end quote. While Trump's trade war, of course, drew plenty of attention and did very little to help actual working people, Moran's writes, the president promised, quote, that his trade policies would actually revive the American manufacturing job market. I am the only candidate in this race who will bring our manufacturing jobs back, he wrote in a March 2016 op-ed in USA Today. By that standard, Trump's presidency has been Disappointing. During Trump's first two years in office, manufacturing jobs grew in line with overall job growth in an economy still climbing its way out of the Great Recession. That rate was not noticeably higher than in the economic recovery years preceding Trump's presidency. Meanwhile, the country's manufacturing capacity, which determines how many manufacturing jobs the country can sustain, continued to decline. The United States lost 1,800 factories in 2017 and 2018, according to data compiled by the Economic Policy Institute End quote. Moran's points to Trump's early stunt at the carrier plant in Indianapolis, a story that longtime listeners know that I covered in depth for the nation and discussed on this podcast, where I did indeed talk to some workers who voted for Trump because he would promised attention to their plight. He was literally talking about their jobs. But around the corner from carrier months later, the Rexnard plant shut down with Mary a peep from the president. And you've heard more recently also on this podcast from Tim O'Hara and Chucky Denison from Lordstown, where the GM plant remains idled and no longer a GM plant at all, despite Mike Pence's bragging on the campaign trail of the new electric trucks eventually to be made there. Paul Ryan may be gone from Congress, which many of us are thankful for, but Moran's sources note that Trump has basically pursued the Paul Ryan agenda while in office, and that is a major reason why the president is dragging in the polls. But I remain skeptical that Joe Biden, as stalwart a member of the Democratic establishment as ever there has been, has done enough to win some of those votes back into the D column. In a pandemic, with the same Midwestern states suffering spikes in COVID infections, will more people simply choose not to vote? Sorry, I'm not filled with optimism this year, but I do think that this part of the story is really important and not told nearly often enough. Trump made real promises to make things better materially in between the racism, and those promises have not been kept. That is before his atrocious handling of a global crisis of both health and the workplace.
3: My pick for ARG is meet the customer service reps for Disney and Airbnb who have to pay to talk to you at ProPublica by Ken Armstrong, Justin Elliott, and Ariana Tobin. The strange world of customer service hotlines blends together many of the contradictions of late capitalism. A disembodied voice responds robotically to your request from an unknown location, yet the phone scripts that your customer service representative must read are designed to give the impression of a caring, carefree voice that seems both professional and intimate, loyal yet aloof, pregnant with emotional labor. If you're like me and have worked one of these jobs... When you call customer service nowadays, you might feel a slight sadness when you're on the other end of the line, making some stranger's life hell for 20 minutes. ProPublica investigates Arise Virtual Solutions, a customer service company that has outsourcing down to a science. It runs a vast network of supposed entrepreneurs, all working from home, representing big-name companies. They're sort of like the Uber of customer service phone reps. These agents are essentially working just like any other customer service worker, but they're not actually employed by the company they're representing – nor are they employed by Arise. Instead, they're deemed self-employed. These home-based agents do ordinary customer service tasks like booking reservations for Disney or answering billion inquiries for Comcast. But Arise is different from the traditional call center model, in which third-party contractors handle customer service requests through their own workforces. Instead, Arise agents are considered sole proprietors or independent contractors. And because they're small business owners, supposedly, they actually pay for the privilege of being part of Arise's extensive network, bringing together top corporations and cheap, expendable service labor. Arise markets its stable of agents as a lean, mean customer service machine, because companies don't have to accommodate all those pesky lunch breaks and health insurance, and other inefficiencies that regular employees may inquire. Workers are supposed to pay up front with their money and their time before they are permitted to start working for one of Arise's clients as an independent contractor. In the case of one former worker, Terry Pendergraft, Arise laid out a labyrinth of tasks for her to undertake before she could even start earning money. Quote, After paying about $1,500 for home office equipment, a computer, two headsets, and a phone line dedicated to Arise, after paying Arise to run a check on her background, after passing Arise's voice assessment test and signing Arise's non-disclosure form, after paying for and passing Arise's introductory training, to which she devoted three days, unpaid, after paying for and passing a certification course to provide customer service for Arise client AT&T, to which she devoted 44 unpaid days, etc., etc., in the end, Pendergraft eked out only $96.12 for a total of three weeks of actual paid work. Throughout this period, according to Arise, she wasn't an underpaid employee, but rather a successful entrepreneur. To recruit workers, eager for a chance to work from home, which is something that is obviously on the rise during the pandemic, Arise markets itself as a pathway to economic independence and prosperity, and it especially targets women of color, it seems. ProPublica describes Arise's marketing sales pitch. Quote, set your own schedule, the website says. No commute, no suit. Arise targets its pitch to those who might have limited mobility or options. Stay-at-home mothers, caretakers, military spouses, or people with physical disabilities. In other words, Arise tries to attract workers who don't have a lot of other choices for jobs. Meanwhile, for Arise's corporate clients, they offer maximum flexibility. Companies can dictate how workers operate down to the minute detail, from strict rules on the length of calls to spot drug testing for the agents. One former worker testified in a lawsuit about how she had to keep refunds or deductions for customers on average below $2.50 per call. On top of that, workers have also said they had to deal with verbal abuse and sexual harassment and were barred from talking about the companies they work for in public. So when riping in public forums for employees, they would use code words like Sky b and what they said about setting your own schedule isn't quite true. Arise recruits so many workers that there's a lot of redundancy built into this workforce, which means that many workers like Pentagraft just end up waiting around and never getting enough calls to break even on the amount of investment they put into their training and setup. up. And yes, there have been court challenges to this system. And Arise has been found guilty in some cases of misclassifying and exploiting workers, ProPublica reports that one administrative law judge, quote, called the arrangement an elaborate construct created by a rise to get around labor law, unquote. So why is Arise still thriving? It seems the law has catastrophically failed these workers. Under a recent Supreme Court ruling, the type of legal remedies individuals can seek against companies like Arise are severely limited. The Epic Systems decision in 2018, one of the first major rulings under the Trump administration, effectively destroyed the ability for workers like Arise agents to band together for a class action lawsuit to hold their employer accountable for abusing them. A company can effectively preempt class action lawsuits by forcing their recruits to sign a class action waiver, This means that while individual aggrieved Arise agents have sued for violations of federal labor law and have often been awarded damages, these legal challenges have barely dented Arise's profit margins. The payouts to individual workers are basically a rounding error on Arise's profit margins of tens of millions of dollars per year. Without the ability to take collective action, Arise's workforce cannot effectively challenge a business model that is built on denying the fact that they are treated just like employees instead of as supposed sole proprietors. And that may be the cleverest part of this business model. Recruiting legions of people to work from home, they have developed the perfect atomized workforce. They're able to pool this labor to achieve massive economies of scale and then turn around and market this asset, the labor force, to gigantic companies. But for the agents themselves, when it comes to pooling their power and trying to turn it into legal leverage to win labor justice, neither the courts nor the company that profits from their labor will recognize them as workers. And just like the customers they serve every day, the boss sees them as little more than a faceless, placeless voice on the other end of the line, always on standby. And that'll do it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks as always to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good. And you can catch all of our archived episodes at descentmagazine.org. And if you like what you heard, please go to our Patreon page where you can become a monthly sustainer and you can also get a cool free gift. And of course, we want to hear from you. So if you're a disgruntled customer service representative, if you have been misclassified as an independent contractor, even though you're actually a worker, if you're a school worker who's recently been laid off because of the pandemic, or perhaps you're a worker at an unsafe workplace struggling to get your boss to comply with basic health and safety measures, we want to hear from you. So you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at over and out.
0: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.